0: Welcome back to another episode of That's Business. Today's guest, Sam Buzzard, is the Director, Talent Strategy for Compass Business Solutions, a Webeck organization focused on driving organizational performance through proven business and people strategies. Sam is an established talent strategist and expert recruiter who has placed over a thousand resources in the technology, engineering, cybersecurity, management consulting, professional services, and manufacturing domains throughout her career. Sam's philosophy is rooted in data to drive talent goals and explore opportunities for organizational efficiencies. Her passion is creating meaningful partnerships between talent and business teams to ensure new hires fit seamlessly into the culture of organizations. Sam, thank you
1: so much for agreeing to this podcast here. How are we doing today? Angela, lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a, uh, a great day in Pittsburgh. And by great, I mean a little gray, but that's hard for the course. So thank you for having me. Hey, it's, uh, it was thunder
0: on my last meeting. And he's like, did you just drop something? I'm like, no, just the thunder outside in Metro Detroit. It's fine. It was beautiful yesterday. We get it. It's fun Midwest here. Before we dive into everything, because I was so excited when we had our preliminary phone call and we have a lot of crossover of the same ideologies on this whole recruiting process and talent. What did you want to be when you grew up and what
1: was your childhood like? Oh, man. It's so funny when you ask that question. I have this vivid image that pops into my mind. So, from probably age, I don't know, 4 to 16, I was adamant that I was going down the legal path. And not only did I want to be a lawyer, I wanted to be a judge, right? And so, oh. prosecution attorney and then I wanted to be a judge. As I have thought about that as I've gotten older, I think that was rooted in a couple of things, right? I'm really big on like follow the rules and win fairly. And I have a really good debate style and I like to win. Um, yeah. so really, like all of those things combined were really like set up for, yeah, I think like a legal path would be really interesting for me. And I was very adamant on that for at least 12 years. OK, how it's so young you
0: knew that's what you wanted to be, too, because that I don't even think I knew what that was. I've had so many guests that just knew like so young, like I don't know what I wanted to be. That's crazy.
1: I don't know if that was maybe a byproduct of the fact that I saw my mom watch a lot of Judge Judy on TV when I was mm. a young kid <laughs> or, you know, right. I just liked that idea of getting to argue my point And when you're right, you're right. And heck yeah kind of move that forward. And then that evolves to kind of, you know, giving people the opportunity of what's fair and equitable as a judge. But all of those things just feel really good to me. And quite frankly, at age 32, they still feel really good to me. (laughs) Heck
0: yeah, they do. Now you said four to 16. So what happened at 16 that made you change your mind?
1: Honestly, I got a little more reasonable about how long I wanted to go to school. I thought about that a lot, actually kind of towards those end years of, of high school and thought, I'm really not interested in signing up for more than a four-year program and realized that that probably had some pivot because it affiliated with kind of some of the, the legal background. So then I kind of went back and did some more soul searching and made a couple more pivots and certainly did not in any way, shape, or form have the idea of being a recruiter or a talent acquisition leader or anything of the sort. <laughs> I think we had this conversation on
0: our first call where we said, you know, never thought this would be my career path. And I don't know anyone that was like, I want to be a
1: recruiter. You just kind of end up in it. And I think about that sometimes, too, about some of the degree programs, right? There are very few programs that offer even coursework to help you understand recruiting. I know, you know, some of the degree programs now with the human resources background, you start to get some of that understanding of what recruiting is like and how that impacts your organization. But a career in recruiting, you're right. No one goes to school to be a recruiter. So we're all out here kind of figuring it out as we go. It's true because I've seen people, I mean, my degree,
0: I have an industrial organizational psychology degree. It's mine. Or it's the HR degree. And I forget. Oh, it was like labor, labor employment relations. I was so excited to take that class. And I had the most awful teacher in the world. And I I remember getting a C in that class because it was very like law specific or this law of 1970 states this.
1: I'm like, I'm not going to law school. Why do I need to know this? Angela, you'll actually maybe get a kick out of what my degree is actually in. My degree is in Spanish literature and language and K-12 education. But I'll tell you what, I take so much away from that day-to-day in my recruiting background, kind of to what you were talking about. right? Right. The behavioral psychology, the frameworks of like putting together lesson plans, the adaptability of culture and perspective that I got from those different experiences in that program back to the point of we didn't go to school to be recruiters but man they do teach a lot of things along the way that were really invaluable
0: no they really do and i love anyone that has a language degree or international business international law international whatever because you do learn a lot of different cultures and it is relevant in recruiting because someone of X background does not negotiate salary the same way as someone with a different background and I've definitely learned that I've recruited in other countries and it is a whole different ball game there. So it does help. And it's so fascinating. And that's my one note, especially to clients we work with is like, you don't have to have the degree. I mean, yes, if you're a doctor, you need to go to med school. Yes, sure. We are confirming that. But for you going on de- paths that you don't necessarily have to have a degree for, Us recruiters or, and those in talent see value in what you do because I think of you're here and I can pinpoint all the other areas where you'd be great at. So what made you decide into that degree path?
1: I had some really influential teachers in those, right? Formative years of kind of that later high school side who a couple of things, right? Felt like they loved what they did every day, made it easy to come to class and just made you feel safe and interested in the subject matter. And I thought a lot about the people that helped me along the way and helped me push myself forward. And I thought that, you know, that would be something that I would get a lot of fulfillment out of, right, about helping different students feel the way that I felt when I walked through some of those, you know, keynote teachers in my mind throughout the years. And so that was really the kicking path that said, okay, yeah, you know what, I think I'm going to give this a go. Um, also right from the area that I'm from, I'm from originally like the Dubois, Pennsylvania area. I'm sure most of the folks that are going to hear this podcast probably have never heard of it, but I will tell you what our closest landmark is, which is Groundhog Day. I grew up about 15 minutes away from there. So when you do or do not see your shadow on February 2nd, you can think fondly of our area. That's our thing <laughs> to do. But in our area, also, that was a very practical and realistic career, right? And so it's kind of staying in you know the rural area that we were from, that made a lot of sense. And it felt like a good career path that had some stability. So that's kind of how my head ended up there. I love that. And it's so interesting. And I know I've said this on a few
0: podcasts, but I mean, how you have to figure out at 18 years old what you want to do and... Crazy. And I had the same thought because I was going to school to be a therapist and I said, I don't want to do my doctorate and very much just wanted my four-year degree and be done. So I feel that for you or vibe with you on that, I should say. Yeah. Okay. So we get into education after and I love the story you had told me of you go through education and then you had the change of heart of what you wanted to do next. So What were those years in education? Because I've worked with a lot of people and a few people that do listen to this podcast are looking to transition
1: out of teaching. So what was your experience? And I feel for the teachers in the field right now for so many reasons, right? It has been a hard couple of years going through this big transformation of you know going from seeing your students every day to figuring out how to function in this virtual world to then figuring out how to work in a hybrid setting and then now trying to get back to what is normal. I mean, big shout out to everybody who is putting in that effort and energy day after day. It's such an important cause, but it has become markedly more difficult over the years. And kind of to that avail, right, so I went through and, you know, did my student teaching and, again, loved what I was doing and coached basketball as well, loved that, had so much fun. And I came to the point where I felt like, you know, there were other factors that were precluding, you know, like strong education from my perspective in terms of just like some political background or, you know, kind of some disinterest in, in the different organizations that I was working with. And I felt like I wasn't making or I wasn't going to be able to make the impact that I felt like I was setting out to do originally and in, in those areas. And that was a real deflating moment for me, right? Where, you know, you're, you're getting ready to set out in your career at age like 21, 22, and you're already seeing things that don't, you know, aren't, aren't what you were hoping that they would be. So that really caused me to take another pause and say, okay, where are we going from here? And my ultimate choice was to kind of pivot away from it. And while I was in college, something I did kind of as like, a, you know, a student job as I worked in college admissions, and I loved that, right, kind of give me a little bit of the same feeling of being able to help folks along. And then I got into this idea of almost like matchmaking, right, helping folks understand what is it that you want to do, right, doing some of those things that, you know, you kind of wish you had all, all along the way which is the linchpin of what ultimately led me to the recruiting industry. When you figured out
0: what you wanted to do next, as far as leading you into recruiting, was that process kind of scary to make that big jump? What made you decide like, I'm all in,
1: I'm going to do it? Because I know that a lot of things people do is fear-based. Exactly. Yeah. And that's 100% accurate. Well, right. So at that point in time, I was Coming out of college, I had a degree, wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do with my life, which is I feel like how most, (laughs) not most, but a lot of people feel like, okay, I have this piece of paper. This was the penultimate. Now what do I do? Now you're an adult and you're trying to figure that out. So I started into looking at entry-level opportunities. And one of them um, in particular that really caught my eye is that transition out of, you know, the admissions environment was the next step of like, well, I could help people take that next step further and help them identify what types of jobs they want to do and, you know, figure out how they want to spend their time every day after, you know, they finish this education, maybe I'd be good at that. So I took an entry-level job in technical recruiting where I, you know, as many of us do in the staffing agencies, cut my teeth, learn how to source, screen, qual, right, work with a lot of different industries. And um, I loved it. Right. I loved it for so many reasons too. I loved it for the idea that, you know, when you're sourcing and you're like, I can go find this person or I can find the perfect person and I feel like no one else can, right? You know, that high that you get as a recruiter when you find the gem that someone else has not been able to identify. Oh my gosh. That was everything at first and still is really to this day. And then really just being able to see the matchmaking ability, right? And see the click when somebody makes a great fit for themselves or you help them make that great fit. And then they're happy and they're fulfilled. And right and like now you've set up a company for success, a person for success. And you're like, wow, that's big impact ultimately. And I had some really fabulous mentors early on who really helped me figure out, you know, how do you do some of these things? How do you get that competitive advantage in industries that you don't know anything about? I remember... Early on, we were really heavy in manufacturing. I worked on a lot of CNC machinist jobs. Oh, that's so hard. Yes. And I can still, you know, to this day, think through about the ideas of, you know, was it the lathes? Is it a mill? Are you a programmer? Like, right? Like those things kind of come back to you like the bicycle that they are. And then figuring out how to help people in those different industries and enable them for success. That was everything for me.
0: When I was actually talking about this with one of my resume-ers, resume writers today was, he's like, I don't know what, because it was like a financial analyst resume. And I always ask, like, oh, what do you know in Excel? Do you know V lookups and query and this and that? And he's like, Angela, I just reformatted it. I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> but because I used to hire FAs in manufacturing automotive, like those were the skills they always needed. So it's like, you know, your brain works 10 steps forward and people don't realize how crazy like our brains I feel go forward you have to in recruiting and you have to see where like okay you, if you have this then you may know that and this and oh crazy there.
1: Do you ever think about the gift or the the meme of the recruiter's brain has 400 tabs open at any given time and they're <laughs> yes. all going and they're all active like none of them are just sitting in the around like they're all open we're going. We're going we have to or I'm like oh I never sent that job to that one candidate as I'm laying about at 11 p.m you know. It's fine. It's a full time job. It's, you know, you try to decompress, but it really does. It's a lifestyle more than anything else. Yes, it is.
0: Now, of course, as we're hearing the ghosting stories and everything happening, I want you to give your two cents on how is recruiting been great and what what's kind of happening in the market right now with recruiting
1: on the staffing side, on the corporate side. What are you seeing Uh, recruiting is a tough time right now, right? And even, you know, we're talking about the shout out to the educators. And then I think the next wave of the shout out to the recruiters who, right? So in the 10 years that I've been doing this, I've seen almost three different cycles at this point, right? It was like a stable, steady climb at the beginning. Then it was this mad rush of like, you could not hire enough recruiters. There were not enough recruiters to help you attract the talent that you need. And even during COVID in a lot of areas, that continued, and then over the past, you know, year or so, we've started to see that grind to a screeching halt just because of, you know, budget constraints and all of the different factors that are happening within, you know, the economy right now. So it's a tough time for recruiters right now, right? I mean, you are now seeing recruiters who, right, you see a recruiting job posted and there are 300 applicants in a couple of hours. And I mean, recruited a recruiter, we know that's difficult, right? You've got to have inroads. So, I guess a couple of things about the industry now. What I'm seeing is that companies are still hiring with less recruiting support internally. That's hard. The successful recruiters are helping clients understand the value of talent acquisition from a how does this influence our culture perspective? How can we use recruiting not just as be, I give you an order from the business and recruiter, you give me a person back in response But in partnership to further your culture, to align people to your organizational mission, right? It's interesting. In a lot of places, the job pools are bigger and the qualifications are more difficult. And so, back to what you said earlier, we're talking to a lot of different people about what is it that you really need, right? Do you need a bachelor's degree? Do you need a master's degree? Or do you need somebody who can hit the ground running, who understands your organizational culture, who's going to run with you and deal with the ambiguity and can put in some of those soft skills and can learn some of the other things, right? And look at some of those transferable skills. Because another point you made, you're seeing a lot of people transition industry. So how is it that as good recruiters, do we identify transferable talent and help those folks then assimilate into where they're headed next?
0: And I love that you bring up the point of culture and assimilating into an organization because you have to look at that. I mean, I have this conversation left and right, of course, being in the field I'm in where people are like, yeah, I I just had a conversation the other day at a networking event. He's like, yeah, I made some bad decisions with hiring because I wanted to give someone the benefit of the doubt. And it's like you know, crossing that line and I'm as empathetic as they come, but it's looking out for your other employees too. Is this person going to be great for you? Or are they going to hinder other people that you have in your organization? And I hate the whole, we're a family, but assuming the family works well there and everyone, different personalities, different aspects, different backgrounds. I mean, you have to, you have to, have to, have to spend the time on that. Yes. Let's start with organizations. What are some things organizations are not doing or maybe aren't doing right to find the right talent there?
1: There's two things I think that are really important and it's in like front of process and throughout the process. Number one is being okay with saying now, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you hear, and this is an age-old example, you probably would hear, hear me say this multiple times in various different outlets. If someone tells you that their motivating factor is something that is not aligned to your organization, even if they seem like the greatest skill set fit for your company, and you're like, I can't let them go, I can change, we can accommodate them. But at your root, right, that is just not part of your value proposition. It's okay to say no, right? Because that square peg round hole methodology is sometimes what causes us challenges internally. And it's okay to take, you know, kind of a 60 or 70% fit from someone who you think has great potential, recognizing that your value props are aligned. And I use this example all the time, right? If somebody says to you, Their motivating factor in their next opportunity is is comp. 100% it's financial driven, right? That's my number one. And you know, your company pays, you know, hey, like in line, we're middle of the road. We don't have, you know, the very top tier of some of those different options. And you know that long-term, that's not going to service the candidate and that you're going to be really pulling yourself in a difficult position in order to kind of make both of you happy. That's okay to say no. That's okay to say, hey, you know what? Respect your skills, respect your capabilities. Philosophically, we might not be aligned. The other thing that I've been seeing a lot is about objective assessment, right? And making sure that, you know, if we put three candidates side by side by side, did we assess them objectively? Did we ask the same types of questions? Did we get the same types of information out of each one of them? And then objectively, are we ranking them? against the same set of criteria for the same type of role and really making sure that we're doing that in a fair and equitable way.
0: You can't just hire to hire. You can't just say, oh yeah, done. I mean, do you, I think you need seven rounds of interviews? No, but I also think if you find the right person, hire them. I mean, or comparing, did you do enough digging? Or what I've been seeing a lot happen is, oh, we're gonna hire so-and-so's nephew or someone that works at the company's, the CFO's, niece, nephew, whoever, or that does happen, unfortunately, but looking at making those hard decisions and per your point of saying no, I mean, look at the opportunity, look at the candidates you have. I mean, it's just crazy. And I wish I could scream from the rooftops of all the people we help and say, why aren't you hiring this person? Because I would hire them if I had a job opening. And that's always the most heartbreaking thing of what we do. Now, transitioning that to the job-seeking side, what are you seeing as far as from the job-seekers perspective, what's happening and what is some advice or where people are sometimes
1: going wrong when they're looking for a job? It's actually the similar and maybe the inverse of what we were just talking about, which is I want my job-seekers to be honest with me, right? I don't want anybody to tell me what I want to hear. I want you to tell me who you are wear that loud and proud and display that and recognize that your value is high and will be valued in that way for the right organizational fit, right? Because that goes back to the whole, you know, internal value problem, mission, vision, values. You can say all the right things in the interview process and say, okay, yes, I got this opportunity. Yes, I'm like, I'm glad, right? My search is over. And then you get there and you're like, this is not what I want. And then what does that boil up to the surface, right? Just like ceilings of like, oh man, did I make a great decision? Or, you know, right, you have emotional feelings towards the organization or functional areas or things like that. Maybe or maybe not, they are what they explain to be and they're expecting, you know, something in return. If you weren't able to be really transparent about that throughout the interview process or you didn't know what was important to you, that can sometimes lead to not a great set, right? I guess that's the other piece. Think about what's important to you and what's really important to you, right? I can speak from my own experience when I, you know, made a job transition at the beginning of 2023. When I started into that search, I made a list of things that were important to me in the next opportunity, right? And I actually, I'm kind of a nerd in this way. I had like a whiteboard where I would like sit and like make my T-chart shout out to one of my mentors who taught me the value of the good T-chart along the way to say like pros, cons, positive, negatives. How does this align with where I want to be as a person and allow myself to feel that? And that was important for me and everybody does that in different ways. But that transparency and that honesty with yourself and then with whoever you're working with in the process, like that that's so critical. It is. And
0: I love the ask the right questions. And I want your opinion on this too, where what I'm seeing from some of my clients is, oh, well, I don't want to ask that question, or I don't want to come off the wrong way. And if we're going to say anything positive about the pandemic is I feel that people feel more okay with asking the tough questions. Why is this position open? What does success look like? What are your projections for this role? Now, what are your thoughts on a candidate asking those questions in an interview or when you're prospecting them?
1: I think they're fair questions to ask, right? If we think about, so my philosophy in general is, right, that you've, you've got a two-way street of interviewing, right? The business is interviewing the candidate so much as the candidate is interviewing the business. And again, back to the point of good puzzle pieces match together when we have the information and we feel like we have mutual understanding, right? So I think those are fair questions. Just the same way that internally as, you know, companies, we can say, oh, you know, I'm not sure if that seals right, we do want to make sure that our candidates feel comfortable with those answers. And yeah, there are, I mean, obviously, right, you're not going to disclose, you know, the entire history of the company and in, in those conversations. But being transparent about, you know, yeah, this role is a backfill. We need to upskill. That's an okay response, right? Or yeah, this position is a net new because the team is growing or because we added a new service offering or just because we feel like, you know, the team is at capacity. Whatever those reasons are, you can have a, a solid answer without having to have, an, you know, a super expansive answer in that way. And Angela, I want to get your thoughts on this too as a follow-on to that. I'm really big on case studies right now. So to your point about the pandemic, like let's talk about examples of things that happened during the pandemic at your company, good, bad, or indifferent, and let's give our candidates the opportunities to tell us how they would work through them. And feel right. That gives you that real perspective of like, hey, I sat this person down in the seat. Here's something they could deal with on day one or 31, and here's how their gut reaction tells them to respond. And then you can decide, can I coach that? Is that the right response? Ooh, that would really not go over well with our organization. Back and forth, etc. Or the candidate might say to you, like, hey, I don't ever want to encounter that. Is that something real that happens at your company? Like, n- no. Or I love that. That gets my adrenaline going, right? And so then you've got this whole another data set at that point. It's true. And I'm going to tell a story real quick on
0: that. So during the pandemic, especially for us, I mean, being a small business owner, when I interviewed my first resume writer, I had someone on paper that was perfect. I was like, we're going to hire her 100%. She's great on paper. She told me everything I wanted to hear. Everything I wanted to hear. Interviewed perfect. But to me... If you're someone that needs like a checklist, if you need very designated tasks, you need to know the same thing every day, it's not going to work. Yeah. She was great for a company, great for a large enterprise company. But like you said, of like the three options, 100%. And you have to, and I'm very much like, trust your gut, whether you're interviewing someone or you're interviewing yourself. I mean,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's. <laughs> I don't know if I want to say it's scientific advice because all of the whole indoctrination <laughs> or whatever, but I'm not. Don't quote me on that. It's very much what's going to work for your organization. I mean, I think I've told the story a few times on here, but Allison, who I ended up hiring, she's been with me now three years. She sold me on her personality when I messaged her and I said, hey, you don't have to dress up for the interview. You're coming from work. Like, just come as you are. She said, oh, so I should put my ball gown away. I'm like, you would be so great with clients. So great. <laughs> love your energy. <laughs> and You're right. Love the energy. I can teach you skills. And we joke about this all the time. But she was one of my, I don't want to say least qualified, but had the lesser amount of skills than some of the other applicants. Yeah. But I was like, you have the personality. You have a communications degree. You have all the things I want. Do I need to give you a little bit extra training? Fine. But you also will vibe well with the team. Three years later, it was such a, it was the best hire, especially for that position. So, and I, like you said, being yourself in an interview, you have to be yourself. I mean, I'm very much, I'm loud and proud that I have ADHD, neurodivergent thinker. I mean, I think 5,000 different ways. I definitely need employees who I can throw some, I've gotten a lot better. But I can throw a crazy idea out and we talk through it. Or I'll say, hey, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And they're like, okay, we need to take step one. I want someone that's like, okay, I'm leading the pack. Are you following or are you not? Yeah. I know I just went on a very large tangent with that. But back to your original question, kind of relating that, I mean, if your answer is, oh my gosh, that scares me. You spend at least 40 hours a week at a company. If that scares you and not like a positive, oh, I get to learn way, but more of a like, oh my gosh, I'm going to hate this. That's not the opportunity for you
1: then. Yeah, I completely agree. And that goes to... I like to use the word persona here, right? It's like skill fit. Like I can read everything in your resume. I can check those boxes. Sure. Got it. What's your persona telling you about how you're going to interact in this environment, how you're going to feel in this environment? Exactly what you said. We don't want you to have 40 hours a week of existential dread because you're here or like, oh my gosh, okay, I got to put on my cape and I got to get through this. And then like, I can't wait to run out the door. I'm all for work-life balance. I hope that you want to walk out the door and like say, have a nice weekend, everybody. And then you know what I mean? Come back on Monday refreshed and ready to go again. Not like, okay, I have to run and be done. Right.
0: And something on that point, too, is and this is controversial. I've been told multiple times because I offer my employees unlimited PTO. But what the difference is with this is it's not a free for all. It's not you get to take weeks off at a time. You don't get to do those things. But the nice thing is the mutual respect. And I think that's a topic we should definitely address is the mutual respect around this. Recruiting can be a 24-7 job. Yes, we know that. But do you have the boundaries of, okay, I'm off at five o'clock, but also if things are hitting the fan, like I I'm one year I moved, my Wi-Fi went out and Ooh. like, for lack of a better term, all hell broke loose. And shout out to Destiny and Allison who like stepped in and were like, hey, we don't care. It's after hours. Like, we got you. What do you need from us? And yeah. I never asked them to do it. But it's just like where people forget is that mutual respect. Is like, yes, we want work-life balance, but we are a team together. And what's going to keep the boat afloat? What's going to keep us going? What's going to help us achieve our goals? We all want to w- make more money. We all want that work-life balance. But what's going to get us there? And do you mesh well with your coworkers? That's yeah. a huge thing.
1: I think that's so important to call out as well of like, how do you work as a unit? And do you feel like the people who are behind you are people that you can count on? And are you accountable as well? So to your point about like work-life balance, right? You know, that is something that I give a great shout out to my team at Compass for, right? They are fabulous at that, that right, when you're on, you're on, when you're not, you're not. And also to exactly what you said, right? Like, hey, if we're going after something and we're going after something big, like, all hands on deck, right? Like we're going to get it done. And then we're going to celebrate the fact that we did that together. That's important. And also being able to support each other when you need it, regardless of what life circumstances bring to you, right? And we've we've dealt with a lot of different things, you know, varying from, um, you know, things that impact us just for a couple of hours to to longer term. And I just think that's so important. And I when I think about both recruiters, right, and young recruiters. So I'm going to speak to the young recruiting audience. And by young, I mean early in career. If, um, you know, you, you live in the staffing environment, that's something I had to teach myself a lot of, right? I came from staffing and I could not turn it off, right? I had lovely coworkers. I worked for a great company. I don't think that they had those expectations of me. But I had those expectations of me that I was like, well, if I spend, you know, an extra 20 minutes, I can talk to three more candidates and I can get two more people into my pipeline and I can make one more close, especially when you're working in those commission environments. Right. You're like, I see dollar signs the more I work. And that can be slippery to be able to respect your own personal space enough to say, I did a good day's work today. I worked hard while I was here. And I deserve the opportunity to unplug a little bit versus doing, you know, right our twenty four seven, which our recruiter raids innately do. Yeah, and be able to just give yourself some space and some grace.
0: And how did you get to the point of saying, "Okay, I need to turn off"? Or was that changing companies? Because it sounds—I mean, we had very different experiences. I before we started recording, when you asked, "Is it a cop out if I say I've liked every job I had?" I'm like. <laughs> Hell no, it's not. That's amazing. Like I love that for you. But I had a very different experience. I worked for toxic companies. We, you know, We could listen to other podcasts that have told my stories. But what was that like for you? Because in my head, I was like, I need to make more money. My company is very metrics-driven. I don't want to get fired. I'm getting called after hours. I'm getting called on the weekends. And there were no boundaries. But I love your perspective that you were like, oh, I can make more money. So from you, what made you turn that off? Because I think a lot of people, whether your job's toxic or in your
1: case, it wasn't. How did you turn that off or be like, why am I doing this? Oh, gosh, really fabulous question. Um, I mean, I just when I thought about how that made me feel outside of work, right? And what I was feeling and what I was and mostly was not able to do, which was, turn off, which was to put my phone down and spend some time with the people around me or go do an activity and not feel like I had to pick up a phone call or that I couldn't pick up a phone call, you know, at any given time, at any given day. For me, it, it was about sustainability, right? Like I was pretty young in my career. I already was feeling the burnout effect, right? Like that, like this is coming, this is coming fast. I mean, right, you know, like spending at the time, I was in the agency world for three years. That's a long time in agency. Like I was like the the other side. I wasn't new. And I said, I don't think I could keep doing it this way forever and do it at this caliber and then bring in the other things that I want to do in my life. And I have a lot of respect for the folks who can do that and who have long, very successful careers in that agency environment. I really, really do. I would venture to guess that They've gotten good at being able to establish some boundaries for themselves, which I could not do unless I made a really like hard line in the sand. And so, yeah, to your point, that was a position change for me where I was incented differently, right? Like I was still incented on performance. I love KPIs. I love metrics. I love numbers. I love figuring out quality of funnel, right? I love all of those things. And to this day, I love getting involved in those things. I love coaching other people on those types of tangible metrics that you can understand what success looks like. But I needed to be measured differently, right? Like a commission structure where that was, you know, higher than your base salary, right? Most of the time was not sustainable for me. I then went to a model that really incented based on like quality and performance. And I loved it. I was like, yes, I am in for this. And I love the difference in KPIs
0: that you still knowing yourself as a professional that hey, I like KPIs, I like metrics, but how those are measured quality-based. Yes. Because we, I mean, our company was not quality-based. It was like old school, as many phone calls as you can. Doesn't matter how many submittals, we want the phone calls, we want this, we want these metrics, that's success. It's like, yeah, maybe if this was like the 90s or 80s, but not in today's day or time. People like text, they don't like phone calls anymore. No. (laughs) Now- Getting into what you're doing in your current position, because I know we've gone on some tangents, but (laughs) that's how we do it on this podcast. What are you doing right now at Compass as far as like, what does talent strategy mean? Or what does the day in the life look like of where you can build these meaningful partnerships that you definitely talked about in your bio? What
1: a great question. Um... I'm just keep you around that. You keep telling me great questions, Sam. You're the best. I mean, you know, recruiters love to talk to other recruiters for a variety of reasons, but it's that depth of of connection. So talent strategy at Compass, right? So Compass itself, our, our company is rooted in organizational performance, right? So if you have people operations, right, our goal is that we can help you. We can help you maximize. We can help you be more efficient. We can help you hire. We can help you retain. We can help you assess, right? All We can help you train we can help you do kind of anything in between with your people operations. From a talent strategy perspective, what that means for me is from the second you start thinking about hiring somebody to the minute that they get there, that's talent acquisition. And it's so much more than that, right? What it's not was what I alluded to earlier of, hey, I have a need, business wrote up a slip, put it on the punchline and gave it to recruiting and recruiting hands back a person. Recruiting And talent strategy for me is certainly about, right, helping sourcing and selection, right? Finding those people. It's also about thinking about those things strategically. And what are we talking about when you're doing your annual planning? How do you incorporate talent acquisition in your annual planning? Right, it's directly linked to your business goals, and how do your business goals flow into what you need to be able to deliver in recruiting, and what the quality should look like? And how many people should you be talking to, and what should your expectations be in order to hit your business goals? Right, whether that's to, if you're a people-related company, and your goal is to grow your business by fifty percent, well, you need to increase your headcount. Right, like one of the first things you're going to have to do is have more capacity and more bandwidth to take on work. I think about that as like integrated function, and I really. Challenge folks to think about the strategy behind recruiting. So getting them involved in those types of business discussions, having a talent strategy. What do you go to market with? Who are you in the market? Do you know who your competitors are? What are they doing? Are they taking your people? Or are you taking their people? Are you having attrition? Or are you retaining? What's the value proposition that you're sending to the market? Because in a lot of, you know, areas now, clients who, you know, come to us and need support are in arenas where it's a very competitive talent market still. And there's either a supply shortage or you know a variety of factors. We talk a lot about recruitment marketing. Like, what is your brand in the market? How are you convincing and showing the reality of what you're doing well for your candidates? Back to right, like competitor analysis and thinking about what is happening in the market space. Do you know, right? You're saying if you, somebody says, "I need to be able to hire in this location," well, do you know what the market's telling you in that location is? cost of living going up or down? Or is it against the national average? Are you getting an influx of new talent in the market? Or are people exiting your market? Things like that. to so that strategic piece is big. And then all the way back into like your onboarding processes. Like, okay, so they accepted their offer. Now what do we do, right? Because the experience has not ended. It's just beginning. It's now, okay, you take that big, deep breath of, okay, they accepted our offer. They want to join us. They're not here yet. And they've got some experiences to go, you know, that run up and even to day one, you want that to be great. So how do we capture all of those things from a talent strategy perspective? The last thing I hit on there is sourcing. I go back to I had a fabulous mentor from a sourcing perspective early on, and I don't know if everyone is as fortunate as that in the recruiting space of how do we go find talent passively that other people are not identifying? in ways and places where they want to be communicated with, and then also changing how we message to pick up different personality types. So really, it's that full gamut of like, how do we attract talent? How do we fit that into the organization? And then what do we do once we find it? And then we continue onwards in the people operation space that we you know, also function with at Compass.
0: That's great. Now, Do you have a ideal type of client or niche of client that you work with? Or what's that look like as far as businesses go?
1: Uh, It's across the board. And one thing that I love, love, love about what we do at Compass, which is definitely rooted in, in the origins of the organization, is our ideal client is someone who is aligned to how we execute our core values. Not a size. It's not a domain. It's about whether or not fundamentally they believe that the things that we believe in and that are non-negotiable, that drive every conversation and every work product we produce are in line, which are our five core values. The five C's connect, craft, custom, care, and courage, right? And we really seek out partners who that feels like a comfortable space for them when we bring those things to the table. Incredible. That's so exciting. And if you
0: want to work with Compass or Sam herself, you can head to the show notes to reach out to her.
1: As we're wrapping up this podcast, what advice do you have for listeners? My advice to listeners, a couple of things. Um, Keep your head up, right? This is a crazy market. If you're transitioning, if you know what you want to do, if you don't know what you want to do, if you're thinking about looking, keep your head up, right? And be confident in your skills. Understand what your value proposition is to someone right? And don't let someone else define that for you. Know what that is. Know what your non-negotiables are and know what your negotiables are back to what we talked about before. And the other thing I would say is take your time in making the decisions. And I'm not necessarily saying, right, like if you, if you got an offer for a new opportunity, you should sit on it for three or four weeks. What I'm saying is don't feel like you have to give a gut reaction to that, right? Take the opportunity to see how that feels on you and take that around and, you know, talk to people close to you about it. See how it feels when you talk about it, right? See how it feels for you internally. And back to what you were saying, Angela, of like, not scientific, but if you're like, oh, I don't really want to tell you what I actually do. And I'm going to kind of, you know, divert that a little bit. Listen to what your body's telling you and listen to what's important to you in that next, you know, opportunity. And, um, The other thing I guess I would say is that for folks who are kind of going through some tough times, continue to look for, you know, the light in your current opportunities and also where your skills are valuable, because I truly believe that we're looking at a very talented talent market right now. And that talent is going to land in some incredible spaces as we continue to evolve from a technology from an AI perspective as well, and how you use those skills. So always be creative about what you bring to the table and how you're going to leverage it in your next opportunities. Sam, this
0: was so much fun. You gave so much great insight, not only from the candidate side, from the recruiting side, from companies. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And again, head to those show notes if you want to learn more about Sam or reach out to her on LinkedIn. And tune in next week for another episode of That's Business.